Well, I want you to take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that I'm still handing out hugs. And so if you haven't got yours yet, let me know. And uh, it's been fun just to catch up with everybody and say hello, give you guys a hug. And it's been a, a blessing this week just to be back and re-engage with all of you and um, to get caught up. So Acts chapter 6, verse 4. Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The apostles of the early church said this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Father, thank you for this simple text that has meant so much for to, to me all the years that I've been in ministry and yet I've not always applied it faithfully to my life and ministry. Lord, thank you for the opportunity you gave me this summer to be in dry dock, if you will, and where my hull was exposed and all the barnacles that had attached themselves to my soul over the years could be observed and scrubbed on and hopefully removed in time. And so, Lord, thank you for the things that you have been showing me and convicting me of and leading me to repentance in. And I pray while this message is more autobiographical, historical, rather than expositional, that you would cause it to be powerful and accomplish your purposes in my life and the lives of these dear saints that have gathered here today and that you would spark a revival in our church, Lord, that would be an unforgettable, unmistakable demonstration of your Spirit's power to help your church to be all that you originally intended it to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to talk with you about prayer. And I know that whenever that topic is brought up, people tend to immediately drop their heads and slump into their seats. It seems that no biblical subjects makes Christians more uncomfortable and triggers more feelings of guilt than prayer. I think for most believers, developing and maintaining the habit of prayer is probably the greatest challenge of the Christian life. Few Christians, if any, would ever claim that they are completely satisfied with their prayer lives. Most of us feel like we fall, fall short of what God desires and expects of us. As one of our elders said this morning in our prayer meeting before church, 
no one gets to heaven and thinks to themselves, I pray too much. It just doesn't happen. We all know that prayer, along with reading and studying and meditating on God's word, is the secret to a vibrant, intimate relationship with God. It's why we make such a big deal here at our church about having our daily devotions, spending time in the word and prayer on a daily basis, because that's how we cultivate and maintain our personal relationship with the Lord. And church history testifies that those who have walked with God most closely and have been used by God most mightily have been men and women of prayer. And I think that the neglect of personal, private prayer is one of the main reasons why so many of us as Christians never amount to much, why we never seem to make any progress in our spiritual growth or never seem to be making an impact in the lives of others. Because prayer is the key to godliness and the key to usefulness. Well, having said all that, I don't want to talk with you about private personal prayer today, at least not your private personal prayer life. I want to talk about public corporate prayer particularly the the priority and the necessity of prayer in the life of our church. No one has written more on the subject of prayer than Ian Bounds. I'm sure that some of you have enjoyed reading his devotional writings over the years, but uh, when you think of prayer, it's almost like prayer and Ian Bounds are synonymous terms. But this is something that Ian Bounds wrote. Quote, the life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. Let me say that again. The life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. Now, if we were to evaluate the present state of our church in light of that statement, how do you think we would measure up? I don't think any of us would say that our church is lifeless and powerless. But honestly, I don't know that I could say that there is an infectious vibrancy and vitality in our church right now. You may not feel the same way, that I do, but over the past few years or so, I've sensed, a, for the lack of a better word, a stagnancy. Or perhaps some level of apathy or complacency creeping into the life of our church. And consequently, we, we are not as effective as we could be or should be in fulfilling our purpose as a church, which is to what? To, to teach and to train believers and to reach unbelievers for Christ. It appears to me that fewer of our members and regular attenders understand and appreciate the value of things like equipping hour, grow groups, men's ministry, women's ministry. It also feels like we're 
always having to pull teeth and twist arms to get people to step up and serve in the various ministries of our church. It also seems to me like our long-term members have a harder time connecting with our newer members or our first-time guests. And, and worse, I think there may be an apparent disconnect with our entire community. In other words, I think we tend to be clicky. And like most people, we naturally gravitate to those we already know and feel comfortable with rather than intentionally greeting and getting to know newer folks. And then when it comes to our ministry model, which we've talked about as very simply, why are we here? We're here to, to gather, to grow, and to go. I find myself using that expression more and more. I love it. I think it just really summarizes what God has called the church to be, that we gather together like we're doing right now for the purpose of growing so that we can, what? Go and make an impact in the world around us. And while I think we do a good job of the first two things, the, the gathering and the growing, I'm not sure how well we're doing with the going part. I often wonder how well we're doing as a whole in helping non-Christians in our local community find and follow Jesus. Isn't that what it's all about? Finding and following Jesus? That's why we exist as a church. That's why we exist as Christians, to help others find and follow Jesus. And the question that often haunts me is this. If our church went out of existence tomorrow, besides those of us who attend here, who would know and who would care? That's a convicting question. Besides us, if our church went out of existence tomorrow, would anybody in our community know or care? Now, these are simply some observations that I've made as a pastor who is constantly evaluating the health and the growth of our church, as well as carefully listening to the concerns and frustrations of others in our church family. And as I've pondered these perceived, and I'll call them that, perceived tendencies and deficiencies in our church and discussed them with other pastors and with the other pastors in our church, the other elders, and I've recently concluded that the way to correct them is not rebuking you or restructuring our programs, even though we all need loving rebuke from time to time, don't we? And um, changing things up, trying new stuff can be helpful at times. But I think the best thing that we can do is to corporately cry out to God in prayer for revival and renewal that he would stir the stagnant waters of our souls and, and send us times of refreshing from his presence, like it talks about in Acts chapter 3, verse 18. If you've studied any church history, you know that all the great revivals that broke out have been initiated and sustained by God's people coming together to pray. 
And in all the things I've read over the years on the subject of revival, I've, been exp- I've often read this. And I never forgot it. The first time I read it, I can actually see the page where I read it for the first time. It was this, that, that if you want your family or your church or your community or your country to experience revival, you need to get on your knees and you need to draw a circle around yourself and beg God to start the revival inside that circle. In other words, if a revival is going to break out, it's got to start in your own life. And in this case, it needs to start in my life. It's a humbling reality for any pastor that every church tends to reflect the strengths and the passions of their pastor. And at the same time, they often expose the weaknesses of the pastor. I think all of you know that my passion is preaching God's word, which has been the hallmark of this church for the last 20 years. I mean, here at Lakeside, we are all about learning and living the Bible, which which I hope you would all agree is a very good thing. It's a very good thing. But I just reread something that I came across a few years back that really convicted me. Whenever I read something that really convicts me, I usually either dog ear a page or I cut it out of a magazine and I put it somewhere where sometimes I actually type it out and I put it up on a wall in front of my desk somewhere so I don't forget it. Because honestly, I think I've forgotten more stuff in my life than I've ever read and taken in. But I came across this article as I was thumbing through a, a notebook that I had kept with various quotes and various things that had, had made an impact on me in the past. And, and so I, I, I came across this, this interview in a magazine called Church Executive. And it was an interview of a man named Daniel Henderson, who is spearheading a new ministry called the 6-4 Fellowship, based on Acts 6-4. And His goal is to call pastors back to the two main priorities based on the apostles' conviction that we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. And not only is he concerned that many pragmatic churches are far too program-driven or personality-focused, he says that too many solid Bible-based churches are unbalanced. And when asked further about these unbalanced ministries of some good, faithful churches, this is what he said. And this is the part of the interview that convicted me the most. Dr. Jim Shaddix, who, if you've not heard that name, he serves as the W.A. Criswell Professor of Expository Preaching at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, on the East Coast. He's the co-author of one of the most helpful books I've ever read on expository preaching. It's called The Power, Power in the Pulpit, And so if there was ever a guy who was committed to expository preaching, the guy wrote a book about it. He teaches uh, students, up-and-coming preachers, right, every day of his life. He said this, that there's an imbalance in some churches of emphasizing some other area of ministry in this case, and admitting as he was a pastor, this is what he came to the conclusion, in his case, expository preaching to the neglect of earnest prayer. 
In other words, he, he realized, uh, I'm out of balance here. I'm, I'm, uh, it's not bad that I'm emphasizing expository preaching, but it's, it's, it's not in balance with my emphasis on prayer. And this is what he said. This is the battleground because a prayerless ministry is a powerless ministry. He says, where we can be going through the motions without the blessing or supernatural enabling of God. It is usually not a battleground of blatant sin, but long-term neglect that leaves us empty and ineffective. I think I am. I think our church is guilty of emphasizing preaching to the neglect of earnest prayer. Now, it's not that I don't pray. It's not that our church doesn't pray. I trust that I have been living my life, that you have been living your life, and our church has been living our life in the spirit of unceasing prayer as we're commanded to in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, that we are to pray without what? Ceasing, right? So we just live our lives daily in dependence on the Lord and just constantly talking to the Lord throughout the day. And as I'm sure you've heard it said before, prayer is our declaration of dependence on God in which we are expressing our desperate need of him for our very existence. Often my first conscious thought when I wake up in the morning is simply, Lord, help me. Or be merciful to me, a sinner. I pray before every meal. I pray with my wife often multiple times a day as issues or concerns or needs arise in our lives or our kids' lives. I pray in our weekly staff meetings and our bi-monthly elders meetings. I pray when I meet with individuals for breakfast or lunch or for a counseling session or at a hospital visit or um, I pray here every Sunday and you're hearing. But for too long, I have neglected private or secret prayer, that all alone in the closet type prayer that Jesus commanded of us in Matthew chapter 6, before he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, hey, when you pray, don't be like those guys who go out on the street corner and, and, and want everybody to hear them pray. No, you go into your closet and you shut the door and you pray in what? Secret. Because it's in secret where you intimately commune with God, where you fervently seek his face and you passionately plead with him for wisdom and direction and you faithfully intercede for others. As I was reading through the Gospels this summer, I was struck once again by the example of Jesus Christ. The only man who ever lived who didn't need to pray, pray to be an example for knuckleheads like me who need to pray but don't. And so you know the habit of Jesus was he would often wake up, what? Early and go away to a secret place to pray. 
In fact, there were times he stayed up all night to pray. When a major decision like choosing his 12 disciples had to be made. And so as I considered this, I'm convinced that before I took some time off this summer, that's the reason why I was feeling empty and ineffective, as Shattuck says, like I was going through the motions of life and ministry without the blessing and supernatural enabling of God. I have been the minister that Spurgeon joked about with his students in his classic book, Lectures to My Students, who limps in life like a lame man whose legs are not equal for his praying leg is shorter than his preaching leg. And I had to wonder how much of the stagnancy or lack of vibrancy and how much of the inefficiency or lack of vitality that I sense in the life of our church can be traced back to my lack of secret prayer? In other words, is the, the stagnancy in our church a reflection of the spiritual stagnancy in my own soul? Is the backsliding of some in our church due to the backsliding of the pastor. So you probably just thought only you guys could backslide. But not pastors. Because they're up on a pedestal and they have this thing dialed in. And they've got to figure it out. And, and maybe someday you all can be like us. No, that's not how it goes. Even pastors. Every Christian is susceptible to backsliding in their spiritual life including pastors. I've lost track of when we read this, but one of the books that we recently read together as a staff on Tuesday mornings is a book by one of my preaching heroes named Albert Martin. And the book's called You Lift Me Up, a very encouraging title. Well, when he originally gave those lectures, which were then turned into a book, and the publisher didn't necessarily care for the, his original title for the lectures, so he said, let's come up with a more encouraging title that will you know, attract people's attention. Well, the original title was simply this, Ministerial Backsliding Burnout, Symptoms, Causes, and Cures. <laughs> Not a New York Times bestseller. Right? And when I read this book for the first time, I was stunned at how a man living hundreds of miles away could have crawled into my soul, if you will, and described some of the stuff that I was thinking and feeling and was not even able to articulate myself. But this is what he wrote. He said, what do I mean by the word ministerial backsliding? 
He said, first of all, I'm referring to that erosion of spiritual reality, spiritual vigor, and spiritual growth, which can overtake a man of God, often imperceptibly, even in the midst of the most active and externally faithful ministerial labors. He said, I'm alluding to a declension or, de- or decline which is manifested not immediately in the pulpit, but rather in the prayer closet. It is a declension or decline which may not be discerned at all in the substance of a man's teaching and preaching, but in the degree to which the fire and passion of the truths he conveys to others have lost much of their felt impression upon his own heart. That is possible as you minister for many years to say things more eloquently but feel them less powerfully in your own life. He says, in the deep chambers of his heart, in the quiet moments of honest self-examination, the haunting awareness of his condition stabs his conscience. His ministerial backsliding becomes a gnawing irritation of the soul, constantly reminding the man that all is not now as it once was between himself and his God. In other words, what happened to my close relationship with God that I used to have? And then he provides some much needed advice. He says, if you would avoid ministerial backsliding, beware of allowing the demands of your official ministerial duties to erode the disciplines of the devotional nurture of your own soul. In other words, don't get too busy to pray. In other words. He says, if we do not maintain the habit and spirit of secret prayer, it will only be a matter of time before a chronic chill of backsliding will set in upon our souls. And then he very encouragingly ends each of these very convicting chapters with a prayer. He says, our Father, we confess how often we have experienced the eroding effect of neglecting these disciplines through which you have ordained to nurture the inner life of your servants. We confess with shame that we have dishonored you by this neglect. We have injected a chill and barrenness into our ministries. And I've had to ask myself, is it possible that my prayerlessness in the secret place has injected a barrenness into the ministry of this church. Fruitless ministries are often the result of prayerless ministers. And so consequently, there's no Sin that requires greater ministerial confession, pastoral confession, than a sin of prayerlessness. Remember what Samuel said back in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, when the people of Israel begged him to pray for them for rejecting the Lord and wanting a king to rule in his place. And they said, oh, please pray for us. They knew that they were under God's judgment And how did Samuel respond as the priest of Israel? He said, far be it from me to sin against God by not praying for you. In other words, he understood that was part of his official 
duty, responsibility as the priest, as the spiritual leader of the people, and to not pray, to not intercede for those people with sin. Back in 1651, the ministers of the Church of Scotland were convicted that they were to blame for the divine judgments poured out upon their land, which led them to make a public confession of their sins. And some 200 years later, the Scottish Presbyterian pastor Horatius Bonar wrote a book called Words to Winners of Souls, a book I would highly recommend. Um, I don't even know if it's still in print today, but... uh, In fact, we may have some in the Resource Center, but I would encourage you to get this little book, Words to Winners of Souls, in which he used this extraordinarily moving public confession of the Scottish pastors 200 years earlier to impress upon the ministers of his day the need to confess those sins which result in the tragedy of a barren ministry. And according to Bonar, one of the main sins that had resulted in a fruitless ministry in Scotland was a neglect of secret prayer. This is what he wrote. Addressing the fellow pastors of his day. We have not been men of prayer. The closet has been too little frequented and delighted in. We have allowed busyness, study, or active labor to interfere with our closest, excuse me, our closet hours. Sleep, company, idle visiting, foolish talking, jesting, idle reading, unprofitable occupations, and gross time that might have been redeemed for prayer. Why is there so little forethought in the laying out of time and employment so as to secure a large portion of each day for prayer? Why is there so much running to and fro, yet so little prayer? Why so much bustle and business, yet so little prayer? Why so many meetings with our fellow men, yet so few meetings with God? Why so little being alone, so little thirsting of the soul for the calm, sweet hours of unbroken solitude, when God and his child hold fellowship together as if they could never part. He said, it is the want of these solitary hours that not only injures our own growth in grace, but makes us such unprofitable members of the church of Christ and that renders our lives useless. I would just go on the record to say he probably wouldn't be invited to a whole lot of pastor's conferences today. This would be kind of a Debbie Downer big time at a pastor's conference, right? To just all say, you know what? We all stink at prayer and we need to repent. Is basically what he's saying to his fellow pastors. He says, in order to grow in grace, we must be much alone. And so it is in this way that we become truly useful to others. It is when coming out fresh from communion with God that we go forth to do his work successfully. Nearness to God, fellowship with God, waiting upon God, resting in God have been too little characteristic either of our private or of our ministerial walk. Hence, our example has been so powerless, our labor so unsuccessful, our sermons so meager, and our whole ministry so fruitless and feeble. Beloved, in light of these things that I've been reading and quoting to you today, it seems appropriate 
at this time for me to openly confess to you a secret, shameful sin in my life. It is shameful as a pastor who knows better than anyone else to admit to you that I've not been a man of prayer. that I've neglected to maintain the habit of private prayer, one of the primary devotional disciplines that God ordained for the nurture of all of our souls. Not just my soul, your soul, all of our souls. And so it's shameful. It's also secret in that to neglect private or secret prayer is a private or secret sin. No one else knows about it unless they ask you directly. I think probably the, my favorite resource that I've ever read on prayer is J.C. Rowell's A Call to Prayer. And this is how he, he opens this little pamphlet, which if, if you haven't read, you need to read. And, and he just comes out swinging. He says, I have a question to offer you. It is contained in three words. Do you pray? Do you pray? The question is one that no one but you can answer. Whether you attend public worship or not, your minister knows. Whether you have family prayers in your house or not, your relations know. But whether you pray in private or not is a matter between yourself and God. I ask whether you pray because there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. He says it is one of those private transactions between God and our souls which no one sees and therefore one which men are tempted to pass over and leave undone. I'm not about to pass over and leave undone the preparation of a sermon because I know if I got up here and just kind of started rambling away and you would all know pretty quickly that guy hasn't been doing his homework. That guy hasn't been studying the word. What is he saying is what makes absolutely no sense and that's not even in the Bible and you would know pretty quick if I hadn't been studying and reading and, and meditating on Scripture. But if I haven't been praying, how, how would you know that? That's between me and the Lord. I think it's interesting. I've lost track of the number of times I've been introduced by one of you in that what I consider a very endearing term, you've introduced me to a friend of yours and say, hey, this is my preacher. This is my preacher. I love that. I love the sound of that. This is my preacher. And I love the way you think of me as your preacher. But as long as I've been a pastor, I have never, ever, and I don't ever expect to be introduced as, hey, this is my prayer. This is my prayer. This is the guy who prays for me. This is the guy who intercedes for my soul. 
on a regular basis. Not just the guy that preaches the word to me every Sunday, but this is the guy that prays for me Monday through Saturday. So I've given into the temptation to pass over, to leave undone what is most important, to get done what seems most urgent. You ever read that little booklet, The Tyranny of the Urgent? Pretty much sums up most of our lives. That we let the urgent things crowd out the important things, and so the busier, the busier we get, the less we pray. Whereas men who we all know and love, we read about in church history, men like Luther, men like Wesley, were in the habit of praying longer on exceptionally busy days because they felt the need for more of God's grace, wisdom, and strength. And so instead of saying, oh man, look at my to-do list, you know, I normally spend an hour in prayer, I'm just gonna have to cut it down to maybe 10 minutes today. No, these guys were like, oh man, look at my to-do list. I'm going to have to pray for at least two hours today. I have so much to do. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? How ironic. We leave undone that which will help us get the most done. I've shared this illustration with you before, but it's, every time I read it, it just continues to, minister to my own soul. It's from Kent Hughes's book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And he gives this unforgettable illustration to impress on pastors the foolishness of being too busy to pray. And he tells a story about a young man who approached the foreman of a logging crew and asked for a job. And he said, well, that depends. Let's see you cut down this tree. And so the young man stepped forward and he quickly felled the tree and the foreman was impressed. And he says, you're hired. Start Monday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday rolls by. And then Thursday afternoon, the foreman approached the young man and said, you can pick up your check on your way out today. The young man was startled. He said, I, I thought you paid on Friday. He says, well, yeah, normally we do, but we're letting you go today because you've fallen behind. Our daily felling charts show that you've dropped from first place on Monday to last on Wednesday. And the young man protested, well, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm, I'm the hardest worker here. I, I arrive first, I leave last, and I even work through the coffee breaks. And the foreman sensed the young man's integrity, and so he thought for a minute and asked, have you been sharpening your ax? And the young man dropped his head and said, I've been working too hard to take the time. Hughes concludes, what an obvious mistake. How could anyone make such an unthinking error? Yet the fact is that many of God's servants fail in their appointed tasks because they do not take the time to sharpen their lives in prayer. Thousands are hacking away at their ministries with increasingly dull instruments that inevitably frustrate any possible success. And so all that to say, Please forgive me for my prayerlessness.
and I will say what I said to my wife this morning and to some of the elders that were gathered to pray, I am truly sorry for how my not frequenting and delighting in the prayer closet may have hindered your spiritual life or the spiritual life of this church. And my wife graciously forgave me and lovingly reminded me that I am a doer, not a depender. She's right. And I know we got a bunch of those running around here at Lakeside Bible Church, which is a blessing, right? Let's get her done. Let's do it. Roll up your sleeves. Let's go to work. But we need to do it in dependence on the Lord through prayer. Well, in today's culture, a confession of some secret shameful sin like the one I've just made to you today is often referred to as coming out of the closet. But actually what I'm telling you is that I need to go into the closet. Based on Matthew 6. To pray in secret. In other words, I need to repent of giving into the tyranny of the urgent and allowing the demands of my pastoral duties to erode the devotional duties vital to maintaining the health of my own soul and to reestablish the habit of secret prayer. It's not like it's never been a habit in my life. In fact, there were years in my early days as a believer that I would that I developed and maintained the habit of secret prayer and it just, it just slowly declined. And I believe that God is stirring my heart up once again and it seems like all roads are leading to prayer. In fact, this morning, I rarely open up my email on Sunday morning and I rarely get an email from my dad. And so I thought, I, probably, I should probably read this. And sure enough, my dad didn't say anything. He just shared a link with me to uh, one of um, the, um, trying to think of what it's called, Table Talk Magazine, R.C. Sproul's um, daily devotion, and it was just an entry for a couple days ago, and uh, guess what it was titled? The Pastor's Prayer Life. And I was like, right? And I read it and was thoroughly encouraged and convicted by it and shot an email quickly back to my dad and said, Dad, timely article, listen to my sermon today. Which my mom and dad will through live stream in Maine this afternoon. And I know that will bless my dad to know that he was used by God along with a bunch of other things and people and books and passages in scripture to draw my heart back to prayer. And one quote in this 
devotional that, that I had read before. In fact, I had, when I first read it, I wrote it down in a little post-it and I put it above my desk with all the other little post-its. I look like the beautiful mind guy, you know, with stuff all over the place. If you ever came to my home office, it's kind of scary to look at, but somewhere in there is this little post-it that says this, this is a quote from John Owen. A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what the minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Doesn't matter how many people you preach to, how many books you've written, how many conferences you go speak at. You are no more than what you are on your knees in secret before God. And so if that's true, and I believe it is, how can a pastor faithfully maintain the priority of prayer? That's what we're talking about, the priority of prayer in the midst of a hectic schedule that seeks to crowd out and even completely choke out prayer. Well, another resource I've read over the years, Eugene Bradford, Intercessory Prayer, A Ministerial Task. He says this, it is a simple fact that apparent neglect of prayer, particularly by ministers, and widespread spiritual de deterioration are concomitants, which means pastors neglecting to pray accompany spiritual deterioration or is connected, they're connected to each other. He says this vicious cycle cannot be broken unless ministers and those who aspire to the sacred office fully realize that it is their office and calling to give themselves with utter abandon to the duty of prayer. And then he just wants to continue to encourage us as pastors. He says the judgment is inescapable that the minister who does not pray for those to whom he is called to minister indeed is no minister at all. Well, thank you for that encouragement. But it's true. However orthodox and forceful the minister and others may judge his preaching to be, however assiduous and skillful he may be considered to be in the performance of his pastoral duties or labors, he is not obedient to the Lord if he neglects to accompany all his labors with faithful prayer. So being faithful in prayer is part of the official calling of every pastor. I know that, you know that, we all know that. But it's also part of the general calling of every believer. We must all give ourselves with utter abandon to the duty of prayer. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, we all need to be devoted to prayer. Turn from the book of Acts, which we've not really even talked about. I'm guilty of using that as a springboard to say what I wanted to say this morning. Maybe I need to ask for forgiveness for that too, right? Romans 12, 12. Romans 12, 12. Notice this little chain of verses in the New Testament about being devoted to prayer. In Romans 12, 12, Paul, in this list of one another's and responsibilities of every believer who has presented themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, what does this spiritual service of worship look like practically? Well, you're not lagging 
behind in diligence, your fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Here it is, verse 12, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, but devoted to prayer. Right there in the heart of this list of things that we are to do as believers, to be devoted to prayer. How about 1 Corinthians 7, 5? This is an interesting verse, and I almost didn't include it because of the, the, the context, which I don't have time to explain. But here Paul was challenging husbands and wives to make sure that they don't deprive one another of sexual intimacy, that they were to serve one another and satisfy one another. But look at verse 5. Interesting. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may, what? Devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, the only reason you should stop having sex as a husband and wife is a mutually great season of prayer, to be devoted to pray about something. Okay, let's move on because that's getting awkward, isn't it? Colossians chapter four, verse two. Colossians chapter four, verse two. Paul says this, devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Again, these are all commands, not suggestions, but commands to the body of Christ in the New Testament, right? To be what? Devoted to prayer, now, be, to be devoted to something means to give all or a large part of one's time or resources to, resources to a person or an activity or a cause. And devotion to prayer was one of the defining characteristics of the early church. In other words, they gave a large part of their time, their resources, their energy to prayer. They understood the priority of prayer. And all you need to do is a quick survey of the book of Acts to see the indispensable role that prayer plays in the life of a church. And almost every chapter, there's a reference to praying and the amazing things that, that happened as a result. We don't have time, again, to look through every one of these, but just to give you a feel for this, turn to chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 13. Acts chapter 1, verse 13 This is after Jesus ascended back into heaven. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journeys away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, Jesus, the son of Alvis and Simon Zealot and Judas, the son of James. So here are all the disciples, obviously minus Judas, regathered in the upper room trying to comprehend what just happened to them, watching Jesus ascend back into the heavens. And then notice what their immediate reaction, their initial response to all this, 
Verse 14, these all with one mind were continually what? Devoting themselves to prayer. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Joseph, and with his brothers. We know this was one of the priorities of the early church. Whenever it gathered prayer, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what? To prayer. So the early church was devoted not just to teaching the word of God, the apostles' teaching, and not just to um, fellowshipping together and not just breaking bread, which was sharing meals and taking communion together, but they were devoted to pray together. In Acts chapter 4, you may remember that they were told not to preach any longer, and so they, what they do? They called a prayer meeting. Verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for courage, and God gave it to them, and they went out speaking the gospel with great boldness, even at risk of their lives. Chapter 7, Stephen prayed as he was being stoned and That resulted ultimately in the conversion of the Apostle Paul, who was kind of holding the coats of all everybody who was throwing rocks at Stephen. Chapter 8, Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans, and it resulted in them receiving the Holy Spirit. Chapter 9, Paul prayed when he was blinded by the Lord on on, on the road to Damascus, and that resulted in Ananias coming to heal him and to commission him and Chapter 9, Peter prayed over dead Dorcas, which resulted in her coming back to life. Many people believed. Chapter 10, Cornelius prayed, which resulted in Peter being sent to share the gospel with him, the first Gentile convert. Chapter 12, the church prayed for Peter's release from prison, and and, uh, he ended up showing up at at the door of where they were having the prayer meeting, and they he got the door slammed in his face, right? They couldn't believe that he actually, that God actually, actually answered their prayers. And I love Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 3. It says, then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. He's talking about Paul and Barnabas here. And this was the launch of the first three missionary journeys, which revolutionized the world as we know it with the gospel. Chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas prayed for the churches they planted. It resulted in them being established. Chapter 16, Paul and Silas had that midnight prayer meeting in jail, which resulted in that great earthquake and the salvation of the jailer and his entire family. Chapter 20, we looked at this last week, Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, which ended in a, 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 a touching time of prayer together. Chapter 21, Christians entire prayed for Paul, which resulted in him being sustained on his journey through Rome to Rome. Chapter 27, Paul prayed aboard the ship during that storm at sea, which gave hope to the crew and passengers. And in chapter 28, Paul prayed for the governor's diseased father, which resulted in him being miraculously healed. 
And so in the words of commentator William McDonald, he says this, the book of Acts is a study of successful prayer. Prayer was the atmosphere in which the early church lived. And when Christians prayed, God worked. It is only when we wait before God in desperate, believing, fervent, unhurried, united prayer that the reviving, energizing power of the Spirit of God is poured out. Listen, there is nothing more unifying and energizing for a church than praying together. And yet, sadly, the traditional prayer meeting has become extinct in most churches, hasn't it? And if a church still has one, it, it, it's only sporadically attended, it seems, by the faithful few. We've had our prayer meetings over the years here at Lakeside, and when we had a Wednesday night service, it was a very normal, natural thing to give ourselves to pray and to devote some time to prayer and even we were devoting one Wednesday night a month for prayer. We used to do it on Sunday nights once a month for a season. We did that. But again, as our programs changed and we implemented new things and new schedules, the, the prayer time, the corporate prayer time of our church disappeared. And so this morning, I want to issue a call to prayer, which depending on how we respond to as a church, I think it has the potential to be one of the most, if not the most powerful things that we have ever done together as a church. During our time away this summer, Kelly and I spent a lot of time praying together. Granted, we were away from some of the normal pressures and kind of out of the normal routines and ruts. Not sure what's a routine and what's a rut, right? But we were out of those things and just able to have time to, to really devote to prayer. And so, and, and by the way, when you stop praying, God is a way of bringing things into his life, in, into your lives, Right? by his grace and mercy, that stimulate you to pray. And God has been faithful to do that in our lives. He's brought some circumstances, some situations into our lives over the past couple of years that have, have stimulated us to pray more than we ever have. And we've thought to ourselves, have, have we ever really prayed for our kids? Have we really ever prayed for our marriage? Have we ever really prayed for I mean, because it doesn't feel like we ever have in light of what, how much we're doing it now. And so, as we considered a new season in our lives, the life, new season in the life of this church, one of the burdens that the Lord placed on my heart in particular and our heart as a couple is to be more devoted to prayer than ever before so that we could see God's power manifested more in our lives and in the life of this church. You've heard the expression, no prayer, no power, little prayer, little power, much prayer, much power. And so I want to invite you to join me 
and to join Kelly with together here at the church on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights. We've been doing other things on Wednesday nights and I'm not doing Ironman right now on Wednesday nights and so I thought, Wednesday night, we're available. What's on your calendar, hon? What's on my calendar? Hey, Wednesday night. Wednesday night it is. 6.30 to 8.00. It's when everything else is going on and so we understand not everybody who may want to pray will be able to Come pray because you're serving in Word of Life or 220 or you're attending a grow group or you're discipling someone or you're counseling someone. We get that. But if you're not committed anywhere else, we would love for you to come. Starting October 10th, we've got a couple of glitches in our schedule here in the next few weeks that prohibit us from, from being here on a Wednesday night, but we... We'll be back and ready to roll October 10th. Put that on your calendar, please. And in the meantime, let me encourage you to do two things. Number one, seek the Lord personally in prayer. Find a closet. Not literally, right? But if you, if you don't have a closet, if you don't have a place to get alone with God, find one and use it. And then secondly, I want to encourage you to attend the quipping class on prayer. Chris Styers preaching a class every Sunday morning from 9 to 10. Chris, you can thank me afterwards for this massive commercial for your class. But you need to go to that class. It's, it's entitled A Call to Prayer. And I know this is something that God's laid on Chris's heart and a number of other people in our church, and that's why we said, hey, let's have a class on prayer. And honestly, I didn't know that that's what they were going to do this fall. When I was away, I happened to uh, get an email that said something about this call to prayer class. And I thought, here's another indication from you, Lord. Chris and I never even talked about that. And you're leading him, you're directing him, you're directing my heart. You want to... Help our church be, once again, devoted to prayer and, and hopefully more devoted to prayer than we've ever been. As Chris has been preparing for that class, he asked me, he probably asked some other people as well, but he sent me an email and said, hey, Ken, what are the top three books that have made the biggest impact in your life regarding prayer? And so I thought to myself, and I told him, of course, about A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. Um, I told him about Ian Bounds and all that he's written on prayer. Uh, I told him about the life uh, or the, the, the diary of the life of David Brainerd, which is essentially a prayer journal of this young missionary to the American Indians back in Jonathan Edwards' day. And um, never forget, Kelly and I, in, when I was in seminary, just laying in bed at night reading entries of this, this, this impassioned soul praying in the middle of the winter in a snowbank, begging God to save Indian souls. And so it was just, a, it, more than anything else, it just stirred us to want to pray like he prayed. But then there was another book I mentioned, and it was almost an afterthought, but it was a book I read years ago that I'll never forget, and it's called Fresh Wind, Fresh 
Fire. I, some of you probably have heard of this book before by Jim Cimbala. Um, back in the early 70s, he was called to pastor a small struggling church that was meeting in a rundown building in an impoverished part of uh, downtown Brooklyn. And it didn't take him long to become discouraged and overwhelmed with a sense of desperation. And, and this is what he said. And I just want to read a couple quotes from this because I think it really reflects my heart this morning as we close. He said, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. I didn't want merely to mark time. I longed and cried out to God to change everything. Me, the church, our passion for people, our praying. One day I told the Lord that I would rather die than merely tread water throughout my career in the ministry. Always preaching about the power of the word and the spirit, but never seeing it. I abhorred the thought of just having church services. I hungered for God to break through in our lives and ministry. And so during a much needed time away, God laid a burden on his heart for he and his wife to lead the congregation to cry out to God in prayer. And so when he got back, this is what he said to his people on his first Sunday back. He said, brothers and sisters, I really feel that I've heard from God about the future of our church. While I was away, I was calling out to God to help us, to help me understand what he wants most from us. And I believe I've heard an answer. And he qualified that and said, I didn't hear an audible voice. It was just um, you know, God moving me through scripture and to, 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 to this place. He says, um, it's not fancy or profound or spectacular, but I want to say to you today, with all the seriousness I can muster, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer of our church. What happens on Tuesday night will be the gauge by which we will judge success or failure because that will be the measure by which God blesses us. If we call upon the Lord, he has promised to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, to pour out his spirit among us, and then he said this, no matter what I preach or what we claim to believe, the future will depend on our times of prayer. This is the engine that will drive the church. And then almost in passing, he mentioned that a pastor happened to be visiting that morning, which was a rare occurrence in those days when only about 20 people were showing up. And so he introduced this pastor and invited him to say a few words. And he walked to the front and simply said this. This is what the pastor said. Out of town pastor. I heard what your pastor said. Here's something to think about. You can tell how popular a church is by who comes on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the pastor is by who comes on Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to the prayer meeting. And today, that tiny Broken Down Church is one of the most remarkable churches in America. It's the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And while God may not choose to work in similar dramatic ways here in this church as a result of us devoting ourselves to prayer, I think as Symbolist says in the last chapter of his book, he said this, we must face the fact that our churches and ministries to be all that God wants them to be must be saturated with prayer. By God's grace, I believe that this church over the years has been saturated in the word. 
And it's time for this church to become saturated in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for blessing me with time away to scrub on those barnacles that have attached to my soul and hopefully remove those so that now that I'm back in the water sailing along that we can make some great headway by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. Lord, you know my heart better than anyone, including my own self. And so, Lord, would you continue to search my heart and show me those things in my heart that are not pleasing to you and that you would do the same for everyone here. Thank you for loving us enough to graciously expose those things in our lives that need to change. And Lord, we ask that you would do something special, something powerful, something that can only be attributed to your spirit working in our lives and working in this church. And may you do it all for your honor and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.